each year where churches and Christians and even some people who aren't Christians come together to think about, to sing about, to talk about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's important that as we do that, that we make sure that we do not see Jesus' death come to be some kind of an abstract thing. That means that Jesus' death cannot just become a feeling or an attitude or an idea because the cross of Christ was in fact a historical event that came about specifically by God's planning and for God's purposes. And so God has told us the meaning of this event, the cross of Christ in the Bible. And so as we come to ponder the cross, it is not up to us to decide what meaning it will have or not have, but rather to allow God himself who brought this thing about to tell us what purpose he had in doing that. And this morning, in order to understand the cross, we want to think about what God tells us through his servant Paul in the book of Romans chapter 5. But before we get to Romans chapter 5, I want to kind of set things up to kind of frame the scene uh, by looking at a passage from the Old Testament. And it's in this text that we see uh, God's people uh, in Israel because of rebellious leadership, because of the sinfulness of their own hearts, having rejected largely the one true and living God in pursuit of the worship of false gods. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, we read this. So Ahab, a wicked king of Israel, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. These are, in fact, the false prophets of the false god Baal. And Elijah, the true prophet of God, came near to tell all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And <clears throat> He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. He said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. 
At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came to her and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then fire then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Well, 1 Kings 18 is an amazing story of God demonstrating His power over false gods, revealing Himself to Israel in power that they might turn back to Him in faith. But in many ways, it's also a very sad, gruesome story, isn't it? Think about all of these prophets of the false god Baal, all calling out to get his attention. All of them weeping and shouting and jumping about. All of them trying to arouse their god, even by cutting themselves. And they didn't take out little pocket knives or little sticks and, and dig little holes. No, the text says they took out swords and lances and began cutting themselves and cutting one another. And for hours this took place to the point that they were bleeding all over the place. Despite all of this desperate pleading for their God to show themselves, we read there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Few things are more tragic than that scene. In fact, one man, Jonathan Parnell, asks, is there anything more tragic than this? Could there be ever a scene more horrible than this with these men doing everything possible to call out to a God who would not answer? Is there anything more tragic, more horrible, more gruesome than this picture? The answer is yes, there is. There is a more tragic, more horrible scene, and it's the scene that we see at the cross of Christ. Listen to how Luke recounts it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus, and when they had came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The only scene more gruesome, more tragic, more horrible than 450 holy men giving their lives to get the attention of a God who never answers is this image of the cross. Before the prophets were calling out, they were pinning their hopes on a false God that didn't exist. They were longing for some word from Him, a sign that He was there, that He would act on their behalf. But there was nothing. But as bad as that scene is, there is a far worse scene than the cross of Christ, for there the eternal God Himself Jesus had taken on flesh to come and reveal himself to his people and the world. But instead of asking them to give up their lives for him, Jesus came to offer his own life for his people. Instead of requiring their blood to be poured out, he came offering his own blood being poured out for them. It was on the cross that their Jesus, the true God, came to his people to give his own life for them. But the tragedy was they didn't care. The tragedy was they openly mocked him and ignored him, and saw him as something completely irrelevant for their lives. That's the greatest tragedy that ever was. 
all that people long for back then and even today. All of our deepest desires of our souls, Christ has come in order to satisfy and fulfill. But instead of seeing this, both in their day and even in our day, Jesus is mocked, his name is a profanity, and he is ignored as irrelevant. But the Bible wants us to know that the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus, was not irrelevant for us. It is not something to be mocked. It is not something to be ignored. And now we come to Romans chapter 5. For there, Paul explains exactly what God did through the cross of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 6 of Romans 5, Paul says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul says that when Jesus died, he did not die for himself. He did not die because he deserved it. Instead, he died for sinners as a display of his love for them. Rather than a far-off God who doesn't hear the cries of his people, God the Father showed his love for his people, even people who do not love him. He says that he seeks after people who aren't seeking after him. And Paul reminds us, he says, you know, you might be able to find someone who would give their life for a righteous person. He says, maybe if you looked hard enough, maybe if you really looked around, you would find someone who would give their life for an average person, someone who is simply good. He said, but no one gives their life for an evil person. No one gives their life for someone who is sinful and wicked and who does uh, vile things. Yeah, Paul says that's exactly what God has done. God has sent Christ, God in the flesh, to die for sinners. And in this way, he shows, he proves his love for them. In fact, Paul says, through this death of Christ for sinners, we are saved. Now, what does that mean, save? Well, depends on who you ask, doesn't it? If you were to go and ask some random person, perhaps even well-dressed in a large city, they would probably tell you that to save uh, means something financial. It means you are holding back money and resources. You are hedging away funds so that you can go on nice vacations or have a good retirement. Then what if you ask a sports fan? What does it mean to save something? What would they would tell you? They would say that it means keeping the other team from scoring a goal. It's what a good goalie does in hockey or in soccer. They save. They save the ball or the puck, uh, keeping the other team from making a point or an outfielder catching a ball, saving them from getting a home run. Still yet, if you ask someone into computers, if you asked a techie, what does it mean to save? He would say, it means you better back up your information. You better, uh, you better save that information because if your computer crashes, if something happens, if you knock over your Starbucks on it and smoke and sparks come out, you better make sure you're able to recover what you will have lost. But Paul says that the saving that Christ did was far more significant than any of these things. Paul says that Jesus died so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. 
That is, Jesus stood in the place of sinners and he suffered under God's wrath for them. He suffered the wrath that should have fallen on them for their sins. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was perfect. And yet he took the place of sinners under the wrath of God that we might be saved from it. That we might not have to endure it. And because Jesus did this, it means that we can be justified, Paul says. This is a word from the courts. It's a legal word that means you have been put in the dock, you have been put on trial, and you are declared by the judge not guilty. Are we not guilty? No, we are guilty. Because Jesus has taken our guilt upon himself when we trust in Jesus, when we trust to him as our Savior, as the one who died for us, God can look at us and say, the judgment has already been passed on him, therefore I declare you righteous before me. And because we have been declared righteous before God, Paul tells us that instead of living as God's enemies, as those that would rebel against him, as those that would face his wrath, we can be reconciled to him. That is to say, through Jesus Christ, we can enter into a relationship with God. We can know God like estranged siblings, like uh, fathers and, and sons who are uh, at conflict with one another, haven't spoken to one another in years. So also, uh, Paul says, through Christ, sinners are reconciled to God. They are brought near to Him in loving relationship through Christ. This past week, as I was working on other things, I ran across an article that talked about one of Rembrandt's famous paintings called The Three Crosses. It was a depiction of uh, the death of Jesus Christ that we read about and we have been talking about. It was particularly famous because it took him so long to finish it. He kept changing it and, and refining it and working on it year after year. And it said that if you look at this picture, which you can... Go to a library or just Google Three Crosses Rembrandt. It'll pop right up and you can look at it. But if you were to look at this picture, immediately what your eye would be drawn to is Jesus on the cross, the very center of the picture. Your eye would immediately focus there. But then as you would move around, you would see a tremendous crowd gathered around the foot of the cross. And you would be impressed at the various expressions of indifference, agony, even delight on the faces of those in the crowd looking at Jesus being crucified. Finally, your eyes, if you kept looking, would drift to the edges and you would see this person that's almost, at first glance, difficult to see. He's hidden almost in the shadows, barely discernible, and yet there this man is in contrition, weeping over the death of Christ. And art scholars will tell you that that is, in fact, Rembrandt himself who was painted into the scene. For Rembrandt understood that, that though he was not alive in A.D. 33 or whenever it was exactly that Jesus was crucified, nevertheless, Jesus was crucified because of him. Rembrandt understood that because he was a sinner, because he had rebelled against God, Jesus had to die for his sins like so many others. Like Rembrandt this morning, we need to understand that Jesus gave his life for us so that we might be brought to God. The tragedy would be to turn away without care or even in mockery ignore the cross of Jesus Christ. But the greatest joy you will ever know is embracing Christ as your Savior and following Him as Lord. It will be in seeing Him on the cross and believing that it was for you that He poured out His life before His heavenly Father, even unto death, bearing your shame and your guilt before God, that you might be saved from God's wrath, experience eternal life and fellowship with God. 
perhaps you're here this morning and you've already trusted in Jesus. Some of you I know very well and believe that with all my heart to be the case. Again, it would be a great tragedy for us if we let the cross of Christ become commonplace. If it became something that we simply assumed and got on with our lives after. Friends, loved ones, don't let that happen. Don't take the cross for granted. Don't let it become obvious and irrelevant in your life. Make it a point, especially today on Good Friday, but even in days to come, to regularly go back to the cross and remember what Jesus did there. Remember it was for your sins that he gave his life. Remember that it was for your salvation that he poured out his blood even into death. And in remembering that, in trusting in that, rest in the salvation that he provides. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, having thought about the cross and the great tragedy that was there in those that sought out a false God, a false God who could not hear, who would not answer. Father, despite their desperate attempts, Father Baal could never respond or save those prophets because he wasn't real. And yet, Father, you are the one true and living God, and you have perfectly revealed yourself through your son Jesus. Through him you came and provided an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might be made right with you. Father, it is not our blood that you require, for you have, already rep- re- you have already provided the blood that is necessary. The blood that brings the forgiveness of sins before you. Father, I pray that that will remain at the focus of our hearts and our lives, not only this day, but forever. Father, if there is one who is here who has never trusted in Christ, I pray that you would move in their heart and draw them to yourself now. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, perhaps for many years, God, never let the cross become stale to us. Never let it be something that we simply shrug our shoulders at and get used to. But Father, help us to be reminded that it was for us that he died. It was our sins that put him there. Father, it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.